Hello, this is Search for Truth. It's great to have you with us and thanks for tuning in. We have another talk today in our series called Nothing But Christ Crucified. Brian, our Bible teacher, is looking into issues and practices of the early church as recorded by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians we look at today, that marvellous chapter about love. And our talk is called The More Excellent Way. So let's listen as Brian explains. Thanks, John. A speaker will sometimes say, but I digress, before trying to return to the main theme of his message. Chapter 13 of Paul's first Bible letter to Corinth is one of the most sublime digressions in any letter in any language. It was a deviation from the central theme of gifts and their use, a topic which Paul began in chapter 12 and one which he doesn't conclude until chapter 14. We remind ourselves again that this was a church plagued by divisions. Perhaps the most serious of all the divisions that existed there was the division between some of their number and the Apostle Paul himself. Others among them appear to have been competitive, having a false sense of spirituality. When they used the gift of tongues, which was operational then, it seems they believed they were speaking with the tongues of angels. And as some of these former pagans in the church at Corinth now considered themselves to have a spiritual status like the angels, then it would help explain why some of them had written to Paul expressing their low view of marriage and especially of physical relations within it. For they presumably began to aspire to be like the angels in the sense also in which they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And this is probably why Paul had to deal with these topics in the way that he did in chapters 6 and 7. Maybe they were also denying the likelihood of one day being raised with another physical body, unlike the angels. Like some of those known as the Gnostics, they probably considered things to do with the body as being immaterial as far as their spirituality was concerned. So they could even then be very liberal about immorality and idolatry. I suggest from the hints in the letter, it's at least possible that this was the kind of pagan spirituality that may have governed the mentality of some at least in the local Corinthian church which is very interesting because the idea of what constitutes a person as spiritual is again a huge area of debate today, which throws up about as many unbiblical notions now as were once found around the waterfront at Corinth. But all that is background, background to our subject of the more excellent way, hoping only that it throws fresh light on why this corrective on love is now being applied by Paul, For chapter 13 certainly comes in by way of being a corrective. It's a corrective against the abuse of tongue-speaking in Corinth for sure. But more than that, it's a corrective against this claim of superior spirituality. No wonder Paul challenges them in chapter 14 and verse 37 with, If anyone thinks himself to be spiritual, in this section, chapters 12 through 14, Paul outlines a truly biblical view of spirituality. Paul sees it to do with cultivating relationships with other members of the body of believers and as leading to the common good in church services, all for the building up of each other. That, he says, is an expression of genuine Christian love, and so love now becomes his theme. In contrast to their competitive spirituality, the way of love is the way of building each other up, the way of seeking first the good of others. In chapter 14, 
Paul will demonstrate the supremacy of prophecy over tongue speaking. Why is prophecy better? Because it passes the test of being able to edify the whole church. The beginning of chapter 14 connects with the end of chapter 12, and so chapter 13, with its wonderful words of love, comes in by way of being a very relevant digression, showing its love that edifies. Let's look at it now in three parts. The necessity of love, and then the character of love, and then the permanence of love. So chapter 13 begins, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. This deals with the necessity of love. Paul begins here to describe the way that's beyond all comparison. Is true spirituality measured by tongue speaking, or the gift of the miraculous, or faith, or knowledge? None of the above, says Paul. Spirituality is about walking by the Spirit of God, and the main ethic involved is to love one another, to be toward others in the same way as God in Christ has been toward us. The signs mentioned are not the proof of the Spirit, but Christian love is. Moving on, we pick up from verse 4 through to verse 7. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Here we find the character of love. In verses 4 to 8, love is characterised by no less than 15 verbs, both what love is and what it's not. Love is both patient and kind, both passive and active, as seen in God's own forbearance and intervention. It seems from the twelve preceding chapters that the negative things listed in this section are precisely what the Corinthian believers had been guilty of. Envious they certainly were, as we reflect on the background of their strife and rivalry in chapter 3. Love doesn't brag and isn't arrogant, but what of their divisions as a result of boasting in different personalities? Self-promotion and love are incompatible, but they had a preference for the showy gifts. They were puffed up, and they'd been arrogant in the face of gross sin. They were rudely unbecoming in behaviour, in that the haves were shaming the have-nots at their love feasts. They were self-seeking, as shown by their eating, regardless of stumbling others. Love is not easily angered, but they were taking each other to court. They should rather have suffered the wrong without reckoning the evil to another's account. Concluding now, we read from verse 8 through to verse 13. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child... I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This deals with the permanence of love. Love should define how the spiritual gifts are employed in the present. The Corinthian emphasis on tongues being evidence of their false spirituality was wrong. It came from people who weren't exhibiting the one truly essential mark of the Spirit, namely Christian love, the love which God is by nature and which he has for the world and which the Spirit produces in the heart of the yielded saint. Faith and hope, by definition, are not for the future, but love will outlast all. It is the greatest thing because of its ability to edify others, to truly seek their good. This is the way of love. It's beyond all comparison. This is the essence and mark of spirituality. Some have suggested that this hymn to love, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, was composed by Paul on a previous occasion, under the Spirit's inspiration, of course, but then inserted in the letter at this point, again under the Spirit's direction, just simply because of its telling appropriateness at this point. As Paul explained it, the gifts were temporary blessings in an imperfect age. One day they would give way to perfection, toward which all the gifts pointed. What Paul meant when he referred to the coming of perfection is the subject of considerable debate. Paul elsewhere described the purpose of gifts by an illustration employing the imagery of growth and maturity. According to Ephesians chapter 4, the gifts were to be used to bring the earthly expression of the church which is Christ's body from a state of infancy to adulthood. The word translated mature in that passage in Ephesians 4 is the word translated perfection here in 1 Corinthians 13. In the Ephesians passage, corporate maturity is defined as all attaining to the unity of the faith, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Such a state will obviously not exist before believers are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It would appear that the same perspective is developed in this passage to the Corinthians. Paul applied the illustration to himself. The threefold talking, thinking and reasoning were probably meant to balance the thrice-mentioned gifts of prophecy, tongues and knowledge. With the coming of adulthood, such gifts become rather obsolete. Paul's use of the past tense belonged to the personal illustration he was using and doesn't indicate that he personally or Christ's church expressed at Corinth had yet arrived at this point. It wouldn't, on the other hand, necessarily rule out a gradual obsolescence of certain gifts as progress towards corporate maturity was made. A city like Corinth famous for its bronze mirrors, would have appreciated Paul's final illustration. The perfection and imperfection mentioned in verse 10 were deftly likened to the contrasting images obtained by the indirect reflection of one's face viewed in a bronze mirror and the same face when viewed directly. Such, Paul said, was the contrast between the imperfect time in which he then wrote and the perfect time which awaited him and the church when the partial reflection of the present would give way to the splendour of perfect vision. Then Paul would see God, as God now saw Paul. 
then partial knowledge would be displaced by the perfect knowledge of God. Once more, I remind you of the uh, transcript booklet that's available for this series. It's free and it's well worth having, so if you'd like a copy, please write in and make sure that you give us your postal address. Ask for the title, Nothing But Christ Crucified. Now, you can order by email or by post, and here's our contact detail. Search for Truth, Haste Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, it's been great to have your company today, and uh, we thank you for your interest in our programmes, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. God willing, there's the uh, next talk in this series, and so please do join us. Until then, very best wishes from our teacher, Brian, our studio technician, David, our singers and me, John. So, goodbye and may God richly bless you. Mm -hmm.